0: So let's get started with our lesson this evening. We are in the Apocalypse of John, is what it's called, but it's the book of Revelation, and it's a revelation from Jesus Christ to Christians of the time, but actually also a revelation to Christians of all time. If you remember, we've been talking about the ways of looking at the book of Revelation And you know the big question, I know I talk about this every time because I think by the time we get through with this, you'll really have the different perspectives on this book set in your mind. And you may have a particular perspective and that's great because all four of these, while they may not all be correct, they're certainly all faithful to the scriptures. These are all orthodox ways of looking at the book of Revelation. And people as they wrestle with understanding this book and applying it to their lives, really revolves around the question of when are these things going to happen? And so a preterist view says, they'll happen about 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem, that's what this book is written about. Historicist says, you know, it looks like this is sort of a coded, if you will, description of the whole church age, meaning from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. The futurist view is the most popular in America and it may be the one you're most familiar with and that is these events uh, are in the future and they're gonna happen in a specific seven-year period in the future. And then finally, the symbolic view says these things are all gonna happen, but you know what? I think maybe they've happened more than once and this is God bringing out recurring truths to us. In our last lesson, we looked at chapters six and seven. What was happening there? Let me bring you up to speed with that and remind you. Is we had the throne room where God is enthroned and the angels are there and the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And in chapter six and seven, you see the lamb begins to open the seals on a scroll. And as Jesus opens these seals, you see the judgment of God beginning to happen on the earth. And so when the first four seals are open, you see four, John sees in his vision, four horsemen. It's war and famine and disease and death. And of course, the different views all agree that this is God's. This is the end times. This is God judging the earth, as Jesus said would happen. This is God judging the earth. They look at it a little differently. As are these all these things going to happen sequentially or not? And are these things literally? wars happening, is it uh, literally earthquakes as he opens the other seals and these cataclysmic things, or is it symbolic of a nuclear war is happening in the earth? Whichever point of view you might have, the fundamental idea is God begins to judge humanity's sin and bring justice to the earth. Well, he opened six seals And so as chapter eight begins, and we'll do chapters eight through 10 in this lesson, it's a big lesson, but we'll pull those things together and we'll do the next set of seven. But as he opens the seventh seal, it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And this is, I want you to think about this as a dramatic pause in this vision. And so what does it mean for there to be silence in heaven? It would mean that you've seen these judgments and God's judgment is playing out on the earth in war and famine and disease and death and cataclysmic things is playing itself out on the earth. And then all of a sudden in heaven, everything is still when the seventh seal is opened. And so you get the idea of just taking in the mag. The, you know, the magnanimity, the huge size of God's judgment. And it's also kind of a dramatic pause for what's coming next. Is there a significance to the half hour? Most commentators think not, only in this sense. For some relatively short period of time, there is a pause in anticipation of what's coming next. So, what is coming next? In chapters 8 through 10, you see the next set of seven judgments you have seven seals now there'll be seven trumpets so let me preface this by saying what do the different views think is happening here with these trumpets so the preterist view who believes that all of this is talking about what happened between say 66 and 70 AD is that this is the war between the Jews and the Romans and the Roman destruction of Jerusalem The historicists are gonna see these seven trumpets as the events that happened in Christian history between the fall of the Western Roman Empire, and I'll show you that in a little bit, in the 400s AD, and that the sixth trumpet goes all the way up to the fall of Constantinople to the Muslims in 1453 AD. So historicists are seeing all this as kind of a map of Christian history, and that's the piece that they believe the trumpets are covering. Futurists believe that this is yet still in that seven-year period, and after the wars and that sort of thing gets started, now you're going to see more things happening. And then finally, the symbolic view, I wanna introduce you to this idea. It's called progressive parallelism, and all that means is that you have seven seals and these are the judgments of God. And at the end, it sure sounds like the world ends. The sky's rolled up like a scroll, and the mountains all fall, and that kind of thing. But then you have seven trumpets, and those also are judgments of God. And at the end, it sounds like the world ends. And then, Just to give you a hint, you're gonna have seven bowls and those seven are the judgments of God. And at the end of that, it sure sounds like the world ends. So the symbolic view is that yes, all these things are gonna happen, but maybe this is the same story being told three times. And three times is the the emphasis. If you remember, one of the things the number three is is emphasis, it's like judgment, judgment, judgment seven being the full judgment of God, seven trumpets, the full judgment of God, seven bowls, the full judgment of God. So you can see that there's difference of opinion about not about whether or not God is judging the world, but exactly when are these things happening. So as we move through the trumpets, I wanted you to understand that depending on your view, how you'll see this actually playing out in history. So then I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Well, that's interesting because on the first, you had seven seals and only the lamb, only Christ was able to open the seals. Now, God chooses seven specific angels who are in the habit of standing in the presence of God and he gives them each a trumpet. So who are these angels? Well, according to tradition and scripture, we think of these as the archangels, the ruling angels. And so the book of Tobit, for example, I'm showing you right now a quote from that, that is not uh, part of the Protestant Bible, it's part of the Apocrypha included in Catholic Bibles, but this has a a piece in it from an angel named Raphael. It says, I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. Then in the New Testament, in Luke chapter one, the angel in the uh, announcement story, as he comes to Zechariah, says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And then from some of the uh, non-biblical at all texts, this is a tradition of the Jews, that these are the names of the seven archangels. And again, this is tradition. This is not the scripture, but this idea is very much coming from scripture that there are seven archangels that stand before God. And the names are Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Mishael, Sariel, Remiel, and Gabriel. And so those are the seven archangels, and so these are the names that traditionally have been given to these special angels. And they've been given trumpets to blow. And then another angel came. Now this is, remember, John is seeing this vision in the throne room in heaven. Then he saw what happened when the seven seals were opened on the earth. And his attention has come back to the throne room and he's seeing the seven angels and the trumpets being given to them. But then he saw another angel who stood at the altar with a golden censer. You've probably seen censers if you've ever been in an Orthodox church, maybe Catholic church. They put incense in a little container and light it and so you see this pleasant fragrance that comes out of the censer, out of this container. And so he has this censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden offer, throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So this is a beautiful picture that our prayers, the prayers of all Christ's people throughout all time, come up before God like the aroma coming from the censer, from this incense, that these that God loves our prayers and our communion with him and these are offered up to God. But then, listen to what it says. It kind of turns a little and it gives you another aspect of our prayers. It says, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and a huge earthquake. There's a sense in which our prayers come up before God and they're pleasing to God that his children are speaking to him. But there's a sense in, think about the first century of them praying to God, you know, we're in prison, we're being killed, we're being economically persecuted. Oh Lord, strengthen us and uh, Lord, pray for our enemies, those prayers, also God takes those and says to the oppressors and to the ones who are persecuting them, these prayers convict you of what you have done. Listen to them praying for you for what you have done and the wrath of God, this is a symbol that God's wrath is poured out on all the oppressors and all the evil doers and the idea of thunder and lightning and rumblings means judgment is coming in the form of the seven trumpets. But I really wanted you to understand that our prayers in one sense are beautiful communion with God. But when we do what Jesus says, pray for your enemies, these very prayers convict the world of their evil. And that's what you see happening here. And this is God saying, I am about to bring justice to all those who have been oppressed. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was gone. The second angel blew his trumpet and something that looked like a huge mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So let me pause for a second. We're gonna go through the, other, the next two uh, trumpets in a second but I want you to notice already, if you've read the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, And if you remember, this is Moses goes to Pharaoh and said, let God's people go out of slavery. Pharaoh says, no, I won't. And so you get what are called the plagues that come upon the Egyptians. But really the way to think about this is this is God judging the gods of Egypt. He is judging them. And one of the things that happen is the Nile turns to blood. Another is hailstones come and destroy it. And as you watch, as the things that are happening here, they remind you very much of Exodus. And that's because what's happening here, Exodus was a little story that played itself out in a cosmic way jesus plays out the exodus story just as god came to rescue the israelites and take them out of slavery and bring them to the promised land i just want you to think that jesus god himself came to rescue all of those who will trust in him from the slavery of sin and the certainty of death and take us to the ultimate promised land to heaven well When the judgment of the Exodus on Pharaoh happens, saying your gods are not real gods, you are an oppressor of my people, you have been judged and found wanting, and here is the wrath of God poured out on your evil and your unrighteousness, that's what's happening here on a much bigger scale. So it's intentional that the way God is doing this is connecting this with something you already know. And you go, oh my goodness, I know this story of what God did for his people in history with the Jews, and now you're using that to help me understand what God's gonna do for the whole world. So you'll see the relationship between the Exodus plagues here. So what are these things? You know That you get the fire coming down, and you get the hail, and you get the blood, and you get the great mountain. Well, different points of view. One, the historicists, remember, are seeing this as the Roman Empire uh, being attacked, these two are particularly like the Huns. Attila the Hun is attacking the Roman Empire in about 440 AD, and you get the Vandals, these are people from the north, attacking. And the idea of a great mountain, which is an empire, falling into the sea is the fall of a great empire. And so the Western Roman Empire fell to the barbarians in 476 AD. So the historicist says, oh, these trumpets are talking about that particular event in history. Now let me switch and say, what about futurists? Well, futurists saw the seals as war happening, global war starts in this seven-year period. The Antichrist, the rider on the white horse, uh, begins to gain great power and sets nation against nation. futurists tend to look at these one of two ways either this is literal there is going to be hailstones mixed with blood fall on the earth there are literally going to be a mountain that literally is is fallen into the sea There are going to be cataclysmic events happening or as i mentioned in the seal some of them say this is symbolic this fire this is nuclear fire that the, the Antichrist and the war and the famine and the disease and the death of so many people is the result of nuclear weapons being used. So the futurists see all these things happening in that seven-year period. Some of them say, oh, it's literally what it says, and others say, actually, I think this is describing a nuclear war. Next two, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven. Blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of this star is wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Let me just interject here. Wormwood is a bitter herb. Uh, The book of Jeremiah mentions it. And so it's not something that I knew before I looked at this and I go, what is that? Wormwood was the name of a bitter herb and it would make things very bitter. And so the thing to get out of this is was that star really called Wormwood? The point of it is, is what's happening here is a very bitter event. It is souring the waters of the earth. And so again, another great cataclysm. So the name of the star is Wormwood and a third of the waters became bitter and many people died from the water because it had been made so bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened or they were darkened a third of the time and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So what is this star? The star's name is Wormwood, meaning what this star is doing is very, very bitter. You're gonna see in the book of Revelation, and there there are different opinions about this, but a lot of times you're going to see a star be equated with some kind of an angel. And so, for example, you're going to see later that the fall of Satan, Satan being cast out, Satan and his angels, We call them demons. They're angels who rebelled against God. You're going to see when they are cast out of heaven, the imagery is that they're stars that are falling. So some think this is an angel sent to strike the waters of the earth and to continue this judgment that God is having on the earth. Others, though, will see a star sometimes representing a ruler you know, a bright star, shining star. So this is a ruler falling. And so as I mentioned to you, the historicists see this piece as the fall of the Western Roman Empire. They saw the mountain falling into the sea. It's like, okay, this is talking about the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And they would also see the star then as Caesar, the head of that as falling and the bitterness would be when the western roman empire fell to the barbarians which is what they called them but these tribes civilization on the western half kind of shut down i mean It became very uncivilized and there was huge disorder and there were famines and there were local fighting and and it was a very, very difficult time when a civilization falls apart like the Western Roman Empire did. So some would see it as a ruler. Others would see it uh, more specifically as an angel. And so sometimes the stars themselves uh, are interpreted slightly differently, but in just a minute, you're going to see a star that's clearly an angel of some kind let me show you what i meant about the western roman empire because this will come up again in the historicist view so i'm just going to take you back in time and this is in the 400s a.d so what's happening in the church the emperor constantine in he was uh founded this city constantinople And so all the purple and all this gold on this map, this whole area is the Roman Empire. And Constantine had moved his capital from Rome over to Constantinople, which simply means Constantine's City. Uh, no, No arrogance there. But anyway, in 313 AD, the persecution of Christians ended. Some say Constantine the Emperor himself became a Christian. Others would say he became very favorable to Christians because he thought the Christian God helped him become uh, conquer the, his rivals and become the emperor. And so you end up with a capital in the eastern part of the empire, a capital in the western part of the empire. So I mentioned to you that fast- forward 100 years, in 440, you have Attila, the Hun begins to attack from here. You have some of the Germanic tribes beginning to attack. And so in 476, this whole Western portion that's in this map, you can see it on the left side of the map, in 476 AD, this part fell. And when I say fell, what I mean is, it's not like somebody took it over and began ruling it. It's just every man for himself. All these different tribes came and one of them conquered in Rome and sacked it and took off. I mean, others would conquer areas and burn and pillage and take the gold and all that kind of thing. Nobody was running the Western Roman Empire. It was chaos in the Western Roman Empire. And so that's why historicists are gonna look at some of these things and say, boy, that sounds like it's talking about that historically. Whereas the futurists, of course, are saying, no, it's, it's still future events. But this is important from a historicist view, but it's also just important from uh, a, his, a historical view of the split between in the 400s, you have really the rise of the Catholic Church. And what I mean by that is not Catholic versus Protestant. That's not gonna happen for a long time, but that Christianity begins to grow even more once it becomes, uh, it grew during the 200 years of persecution. But when Constantine said, we're not persecuting Christians anymore, the structure of the church begins to grow. You start to see church buildings because you can actually be a Christian and you can be open about it. In the east, so in the west you have chaos when it falls and the church is at least there to provide social services. Uh, And the church itself and the Christians were kind of in a a large part, helping to hold things together in the West. In the East, you still had a functioning government. It's called the Eastern Roman Empire. It comes to be known as the Byzantine Empire because they changed the name of Constantinople to Byzantium. So in other words, it's the Roman Empire, and it goes on for another 1,000 years until the Muslims attack and destroy it in 1453. So I'm spending a little time on the historicist view because I wanna do justice to it and say, you can see how, whether you agree with that or not, one might be tempted to chart these judgments as you know God's judgment isn't reserved for seven years in the future. He's actually been judging these evil empires all along. And so that's more of the historicist view of that. Okay, moving on. After those four angels sound their trumpets and you see nations falling and war happening and people dying and conditions getting worse. The fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he, the star, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. That word for bottomless pit is our word abyss. He was given the key to the abyss, this bottomless pit. And from the shaft, when he opened it, smoke rose up like the smoke of a great furnace. If you're starting to think of hellfire at this point, you are definitely getting the image like that's not a good place. And so he opens up the abyss and is given the ability to open up the abyss and out of it comes this smoke. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. Now locusts historically have been fearsome little insects because the hordes of locusts could cause a famine by just devouring crops. They were considered a cataclysmic event and sort of a a judgment from God, if you will. But these locusts were given power like the power of scorpions. So you know that, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. And these scorpions, locusts, were told not to harm the grass or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In our last lesson in chapter six and seven, God stops everything and he says, I have believers here during this tribulation. If you're a futurist and you believe the church has been raptured, these are people that became Christians during this seven year period in the future. If you're not a futurist, these are Christians living throughout all time but in any case God says spare them and you may torment the people they were allowed to torment them for five months what's the significance of five months a a short relatively short period of time significant but short period of time but not to kill them their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Uh, So let me go on and then I'm gonna come back and tell you what the different views think. What are these creatures and what are they doing? They're, They're somehow tormenting. So remember, John is seeing a vision and the best thing he can describe is, well, they're kind of like locusts, but you know what? They're also kind of like scorpions in the sense that they have been given power to torment people on the earth, this is part of God's judgment. Let's go on and tell us a little bit more about what they look like. He said, you know these locusts, and and he's trying to find words to describe what he's seeing. These locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces, their hair like long women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like iron, and the noise of their wings was really loud. They have tails with stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Now, so let me stop for a second. You can tell from this language that John is seeing a vision and he does not not understand what that actually is, but he sees this happening on the earth, this vision of what's happening on the earth and he's describing as best he can what these things are. But no matter what your point of view, and I'm gonna give you some points of view on what are these uh, creatures, is you get the idea that these are creatures coming up out of the abyss that are inflicting horrific suffering on humanity. So you get the image, even even if John doesn't tell you exactly what this is. So last line, they have as king over them, these horses, these locusts, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, and both of those words in those two different languages mean destroyer. So this is not a good guy. And so this pit gets open because it's allowed to get open, and many commentators think that this star, this angel, is Lucifer, is Satan, and out of the pit come his angels, his rebellious angels, whom we call demons. These demons come up, and Satan is allowed to do his worst on the earth, not to the Christians in this case, but everyone else he's allowed to do his worst to them. And so one of the views is this is Satan, and here's a passage from Isaiah that kind of ties into this. Again, remember how Revelation really uses Old Testament imagery. Isaiah says this, and the Jews thought this was talking about Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. That word, by the way, in Latin is Lucifer. This is where you get that name from. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Why were you cast down? You said in your heart, I'm gonna ascend to heaven. I'm gonna raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly to the utmost heights. In other words, he wants to sit on that throne in the throne room instead of God. And I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, I'm going to be God. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. So that's a prophecy in 700 B.C., Now, in the book of Revelation, you see Satan, the pit to which he is reduced, and bringing up his rebellious angels out of it and just venting his wrath on humanity and suffering and agony of the people. So, some think that uh, these creatures, these horses, if you will, uh, are demons. These locusts, these are demons that are loosed by Satan to just inflict uh, pain. Here's a little more of a description as it goes on. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of all the people were killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. This is a vile picture, isn't it? So you can certainly see, okay, this is the demonic activity. If you're a futurist, one view is very literal and says, these are demons and they have been loosed to just torment and kill people. For the power of the horses is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. So some of the futures say this is Satan unleashing all the demons on the earth. But others say, remember, some said it was literal, these uh, judgments, and others said this is nuclear war. There also are futures to say it's not demons per se. What John is trying to describe is this, is an attack helicopter, that you have war, and he sees these locusts, these horses with iron breastplates and fire and ability, those, that futurist view will say, no, they're not literal demons. Um, they're actually yet again talking about nuclear war and destruction and humanity under the, uh, under the auspices of the Antichrist, whom we will meet soon. The Antichrist, it, war is devastating the world and suffering is unbelievable in the world. So futurists have a couple different views, but basically everybody is agreeing on what's happening here. God is allowing the sin of humanity to play itself out in this catastrophic way. God is judging humanity, but it almost is like God is allowing humanity and let sin to take its course and you can see how ugly that sin itself is and I want to go back to this little phrase so as these trumpets are blown and as this whether you think it's demons let loose and earthquakes and fire and hail and blood or this is a description of unbelievably world war, nuclear world war happening. Whatever you believe, I wanna home in for just a second on this. Look what he said, in those days, people will seek death and they won't be able to find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now it's easy to read over this, but as you just sit with this a little, you realize how very, The Old Testament calls the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ and the judgment of the earth and the reward for those who are faithful. They call it the great and terrible day of the Lord. One of the things you see here, and this verse just really hits me when you realize the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is the best news you could ever hear if you have placed your trust in him, it is the worst news you could ever hear if you are rebelling against God. And this verse just so brings that home is that people, I mean, stop and think about that. You and I both know there are things worse than death, but the idea of being in a situation where you long to die, but you cannot, this is huge suffering. This is Huge justice, huge judgment being done on evildoers. I want to tie in one other thing that doesn't necessarily have anything to happen here, but I want to connect a couple of dots here for you. I want to suggest to you and make some sense out of something Jesus said. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and he was being crucified? He is the ultimate oppressed person in that he did nothing wrong. He healed people. He loved people. He brought hope to people. And the people and the Roman Empire, here he is dying on a cross, bearing your and my sins. You and I drove those nails in too in the sense that my sins were on his shoulders as well. And Jesus looks out And he says, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. Now, I want you to think about that in two senses of the word. The one sense you probably normally do is this is Jesus modeling the unbelievable grace and love of God that for all who believe, all who place their trust in Christ, even these sins are forgiven, even the crucifixion of the only truly honest, uh, pure human being can be forgiven. And Jesus himself says, I will extend you forgiveness, not revenge. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. I mean, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus' willingness to forgive and to bear our sins. But now I wanna connect this dot in a little different way because again, That forgiveness is the best news you could ever hear if you say, I repent, I I am sorrowful to death, you know, forgive me, my old self will die, I'll be raised to walk in newness of life, I'll take up my cross and I will follow you for all the days of my life. That is the best news and the best life you could hope for. But I also want you to realize that there are far more people throughout history according to Jesus, that will choose the path of destruction. You know, narrow is the gate that leads to uh, life and wide is the gate and easy is the path that leads to destruction, the self-centeredness, the sin, the man's inhumanity to man, that literally the rebellion against God. I think that statement also speaks to those people in this sense. When you see this verse and Jesus is there and he sees He knows what the judgment of God will look like. He came to offer salvation to all who would believe. But those who do not will see the conquering king, Jesus returning and the judgment of God and he knows they will wish to die and they won't be able to. When he says forgive them, they have no idea what they are doing they have no idea of the judgment that's coming on them. Now why do I tell you that? Because it's true, it's not just good news, it's also judgment of God, and God has to judge the world. He has to destroy evil. There are victims in the world, there are people who are oppressed in the world. God is going to do what is right. But Jesus, in his heart, sees that and says, they have no idea what they're doing. And what's my point? My point to you is this, when you think about praying for your enemies, praying for people who have hurt you, praying for people who have persecuted you, the early church is praying for the Roman emperor. Now they're not praying, hey Lord, I hope he can be more successful in killing people. Of course that's not what they're praying, they're saying, Lord, save him, turn his heart, help him to repent. Help my enemies to repent of the evil that they are doing. There's uh, There's no naivety here. Jesus isn't saying, oh, pretend that they're really good people and pray for them. No, but have enough compassion to pray that they will turn, that they will know you. And Jesus says, because they have no idea what is coming. This was very comforting to Christians, not because they wished for vengeance, but because they knew that their God would do what is just. Our job is to pray for our enemies, to come to a knowledge of the truth and repent and stop hurting people and stop doing this. And we can rest in the assurance that God will indeed do vengeance. And vengeance at a level that you and I could never do. We could never fully judge the evil on this earth. But this verse, and I'll move on now, but I really want you to think about how we can trust God to judge the world. You and I can pray for our enemies and love people because we have the assurance that our God will do what is right. And I find that to be a much more reasonable way than just saying, look, you gotta try real hard to pray for your enemies, and boy, you gotta try really hard to be a good person. You gotta try to let go of vengeance. I understand that, but the way for that to happen is simply to say, I completely trust that my God will do what is right. And I think that's the message to the early Christians, and I think it's the message to us as well. So moving on, the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. The horns of the altar. An altar is a big stone platform on which you would make sacrifices. And the horns of the altar, is the, they would always have kind of stone pieces at the corners. So from, from the altar before the God, uh, God says to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Remember the river Euphrates is running in Iraq and you got to the east of that. You have Iran, you have Russia, you have China, etc. cetera. To the west of that, you kind of have the Middle East and you have Europe and all that. But that river Euphrates, he said, release the four angels who have been bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for this very hour, this very day, this very month and this very year were released to kill a third of mankind the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000 that's 200 million so what's happening here so god says you may release those demons those angels or those rulers and this is predominantly a futurist i'm going to talk about the way the future see it They're gonna say in the middle of all this nuclear war or in the middle of all these cataclysms, at the river Euphrates, those demons who control those nations are allowed to bring 200 million soldiers and begin yet another cataclysmic war happening. A lot of futurists who see this as a war point to as evidence that this is not at all unreasonable and take it quite literally that the Chinese army is huge, you have a little over a billion people there. And so the idea of a 200 million man army, many futures think this is literally mapping out the Antichrist, nuclear war, trying to take over the world, Satan is behind the Antichrist, there is this demonic influence, and that this is specifically talking about how the Chinese will enter into this war in a great way. So this is what some futurists see happening because they tie it very much to events that are gonna happen. This is also why some futurists also look at current events and say, wow, we have gotta be close to the the seven years of tribulation because look at Iran and Russia are in, in league to rule the Middle East and their you know, Iranian drones are now going to be built in Russia. And Russia and China are allied together as Russia invades you know parts of area they didn't have. And as China looks at Taiwan, I mean, you read the news today. and as a futurist, you say, we may be getting really close because if you interpret it this way, you're thinking, looks like, Nuclear arms are proliferating to all different kinds of countries who might start using them. Looks like an alliance in the East between Russia and the Muslim Iran and China, et cetera. So as you hear these things in the news and as you hear religious people and pastors talk about this, from a futurist point of view, they really see us getting close because of the events that are happening today. And then wrapping it up, the rest of the mankind who were not killed by these plagues, by these judgments, remember the same word, plagues, that was used in Exodus, by these judgments did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murder or sorcery or sexual immorality or their thefts. So it's really interesting is they're suffering and they wish to die and yet they do not turn to God. Now, from your and my perspective, you might say, why would you not? How do you not know it's God? Because in their view, and this is one of the reasons futures believe this is gonna play itself out in wars, things like that, is they don't see God behind it. They just think this is what's happening in the world. right? And they don't realize, oh my goodness, this is what God said he would do. God is orchestrating all of it. God is the one allowing all of this to happen. But the other parallel to the Exodus is this. Do you remember Pharaoh when he gets nine of these judgments? You know, the Nile turns to blood, and you have hail, uh, with burning hailstones come, and you have the cattle are dying, and, you know, just all these things are going. And what does Pharaoh do? He doesn't relent, he doesn't repent. And this is saying, just like that, evil will not turn back to God despite what God is doing. And so the sixth trumpet uh, is blown, and from a historicist's point of view, you just, those six trumpets kind of mapped out about 1,000 years of history. To the futurist, you say, look, this is getting worse and worse. The Antichrist started a war, you've got nuclear uh, winter, you've got suffering, whatever, now you've got a huge invasion again from the east, and the, you just see countless, endless global war happening here. And just like at the sixth seal, where there was a little interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's a little interlude here, like things sort of stop and John sees a different vision. He says in chapter 10, then I saw another mighty angel. So you're not seeing the seventh trumpet yet. I saw another really powerful angel and he came down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs were like pillars of fire. This is a powerful angel of God. And he had a little scroll open in his hand. Most commentators do not think, and I would agree, this is not the same scroll that the seals were open. But he's got a little scroll in his hand. Let's see what the deal is with that. And he said his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now you may remember, what did I say about thunder and lightning and all that is a judgment of God is coming. And so in the midst of all these judgments, yet again, you see in this little interlude, remember after the sixth seal, we had silence in heaven for 30 minutes, kind of what's coming next. Now, after the six trumpets you've got, this angel comes with a little scroll and thunder starts at me like, oh no, what's coming next, right? And so he says, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me and said, go take the scroll that's laying open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and I told him, give me the scroll. And he said to me, take this scroll and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate the scroll. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was bitter. And I was told, you must prophesy about many more things that are gonna happen, like the judgment of God is not done, about many people, nations, languages, kings, about more things. Things that are going to happen so if you're a futurist you're like yes okay god pauses and says i'm not through with judgment you've had seven seals seven trumpets this is not yet the end so at this point if you're a futurist you're midway through the seven years of tribulation and we'll talk more about that in our our next lesson but that this is is still going on there's an old testament passage and you've seen this many times in this lesson how often God's visions are saying, you guys remember this in the Old Testament, good. I showed you that so you would be able to understand this huge concept that's happening. Ezekiel, now think Ezekiel's living 600 years before Christ. I wanna take you back to a passage here. Ezekiel said, I saw a vision, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll and they unrolled the scroll in front of me and on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe, sadness uh, on this scroll. And he said to me, son of man, Ezekiel, eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll and he said, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth but then the spirit took me away and I went in bitterness of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. So let me come back to our passage. What is the imagery here saying? What it's saying is that on this scroll is written the judgment of God, it's bad news. It says you are guilty, you have been convicted and you are judged to be evil, to be a lawbreaker, whatever it may be, it's a verdict. It's God's judgment, like the judgment of the court, so to speak, like you've been found guilty. But this is God saying, you have been found guilty of sin, of rebellion against God. And so this is the word of God, and the word of God is always sweet. Remember, what I told you, the judgment of God is the best news you could hear for all those who've been oppressed and all those who've been killed. This is sweet news that God will do justice. But it's bitter in that, John and Ezekiel had to go say, woe to you, woe to those of you that have rejected God, that have rebelled against God. And so you get in this the idea that this is really good news and it's really bad news for those who rebelled against God. And that's the meaning of that little scroll is the word of God is sweet to believers, but it's bitter to those who have rebelled against God. So let me pause for a second because we've covered quite a bit and we're well into this period of tribulation. If you're a futurist in this seven years and, and you, I want you to get a sense of what's happening here is all the power of the earth, all the power of the government, whether it's Caesar or Attila the Hun or every empire that's ever lived, they no longer control events on the earth. This is God saying, this is my world, and I am going to bring home to me all of those who place their trust in me, give them white robes, wipe every tear from their eyes, and they will receive their crown of life. And for those who have rebelled, you will see the wrath of God being poured out. And whether that's through the inevitable result of sin, that sin itself leads to war and disease and And hurt and pain and suffering it is or it's God's decree that the earth and the universe will begin to break apart either way that you look at this you see the power of God's judgment but one of the beauties of this as you think about the book and put this book into the context of their lives and our lives is that deep settled assurance, because we're going about our Monday through Friday, day-to-day lives, and we're wrestling with praying for our enemies, and we're struggling, and we offer up the prayers of praise to God, but also, Lord, help us. And we offer those prayers, and as you read this book, you see from the other side what is happening with those prayers and how God knows who you are and has sealed you. This is not intended to be a scary book of wild visions. As you read through it, and I hope you're starting to get the sense of this, this is God revealing to you the true nature of reality to encourage us to hold on, to persevere, because God will make everything right. Well, in our next lesson, Satan is gonna show up and there's going to be war in heaven as the rebellion continues. I'll see you guys in two weeks.